Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Well, I thought I was going to start a new series, but the more I, I studied this out, the more I realized it's kind of just a, an extension of what I've been preaching over the last four weeks on Blood Covenant. Um, but it's a little different angle. We have our, our, our core scripture, and I'm going to keep coming back to it, and um, I thought originally this would probably be a, a one-off, but um, there's more here than I can get to um, probably in a month, but we'll just go see how far we can go. But our, our, our founding scripture is Luke 1, 37. And out of the New King James, it says, For with God nothing is impossible. Now, this is one of those odd scriptures, odd, not, by, um, not odd in the, in the sense that it's a strange doctrine, but it's a strange way of saying what, what Gabriel is saying about God. He's, he's approaching this thing from a negative standpoint rather than a positive standpoint. Now, God does say in His Word, He makes the same point positively. In Matthew um, 19, you don't have to go there, but Matthew 19 and Mark 10, in the story of the rich young ruler, when Jesus makes the point that it's very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples were shocked and dismayed, particularly because most of them were wealthy individuals. They were very, you know, they, we, we get the idea that the disciples and Jesus walked around penniless and, and had nothing. Most of them were fishermen. They owned their own business. They were entrepreneurs. They, they had some money. Now, they weren't, they weren't rich living in palaces with servants, but they were far from destitute. And when, when Jesus said, you know, this is difficult, he followed it up with the statement, but with God all things are possible. That's the positive side of, of what we're looking at. And he also used that same phrase when he, we saw this uh, at Easter in Mark chapter 14 when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Abba, Father, let this cup pass from me. For with you, all things are possible. That's, that's a pretty tough demand on the Father. But here in, in Luke, and, and we see the, the way, and it's interesting how he phrases this, uh, especially in the Greek, in Luke one thirty seven. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Well, when, when you just read that, standalone, uh, you know, first reading, it's a, it just says God has absolute power. If He wants to do something, if it's His will, it's going to get done. Well, in one sense, yes, that's true. God, He started this thing in motion. He's the one that set everything spinning. He created the entire universe. He set the planet salvation. He created man. He has done all of it. But He also threw into the mix mankind and free will. Now that does not mean that he did not know how it was going to end, 
but it's taking a spin of its own. And, and when God throws free will into the mix, then he, in, in, in a certain sense, he has given up, or he hasn't really given up his sovereignty, but he has said, I'm not going to control this aspect of it. I'm going to let this creature decide for themselves which way they want to go. I'm going to give them choices and they can go do this, they can go do that. I'm going to get where I want to go, ultimately, but individually, everybody gets to figure it out on their own and gets to decide their route and their decisions. We have a lot more power in our lives than we ever sometimes think we do. And, and this is part of what, what God's saying here. Um, with, if you look at this, the, the word there, impossible, is the, it's, it's the um, Greek word, or the Greek letter alpha in front of the Greek word dynatos, which is where we get dynamo, energy, power to do things. So he said, literally it means no energy, no power. So it's impossible because there's no power there. But now he's also said that no thing is powerless, is essentially what he's saying. When you're dealing with God, there's always the power to accomplish what he's set out and what he's determined can be done. Now, we can circumvent that power and say, no, thank you. It's, it's a horrible reality, but each one of us gets decide, to decide whether we're going to heaven, whether we're going to hell. You know, we use the phraseology, God's going to send sinners to hell. No, He's not. God will never send the first person to hell. They choose to go to hell. It's not His will, ever. Now, that does not mean that He will not, once they make that choice, that He won't enforce their choice. He will enforce it. And He will enforce it hard. He will bar them there, lock them in. They will be in the lake of fire for all eternity. And He will not allow them to depart from that choice. But He didn't send them. They chose to go there. It's a horrible thought, but it is the same. Now, when you, when you look at Bible interpretation, there's, there's one word that, or actually three words. Sometimes I have a problem with math. But there's three words that always, always apply. Context is king. So we've got Luke 137, and it says there is nothing impossible for God. So what's its context? Well, if you know, you ought to be familiar if you've been a Christian any time. Luke one is the Christmas story, the first part of, of Luke. It's about Jesus' birth. So let's back up and, and let's start in look at Luke one verse five and just set the context for, for what Gabriel, this is the angel Gabriel talking in verse thirty seven. Verse verse five tells us that we're dealing with Zacharias. This is the, um, Elizabeth's husband, John the Baptist's father. And this is before John's, John is born. He's in the temple and he's doing the ministry of the temple. In verse 7, 
It describes the relationship between Zacharias and, and Elizabeth. It says they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. This is much like the, the um, situation of Abram and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah. They're old, they've never had any kids, not from lack of trying, but Sarah can't have them. So keep that in mind. This is a long-standing problem. Drop down to verse 11. Zechariah is just going through the motions, not, not just going through the motions, but he's, he's doing the ministration of, the, um, um, of a priest in the temple. And in verse 11 it says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So he's in the holy place. He's not in the holy of holies, but he's in the holy place. And I, I love the fact that the detail. He's on the right side of the altar of incense. You could have just said, well, he's, in, he's by the altar of incense. Does it matter that he's on the right side or the, or the left side? I don't know that it really matters. It just shows that sometimes God just wants to let you know there are details. And this is accurate. But it says in verse 12, And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell on him. That translation really doesn't give justice to what happened to Zacharias. This is a, um, go check your shorts, troubled and fear. This is, I'm about, in fact, there are, there are this, we're going to see here in a minute, this is the angel Gabriel. Scripture records four places in, in Scripture where Gabriel came and spoke to a person. Two of them are here in Luke, Zacharias and later Mary, the mother of Jesus. The other two in the Old Testament to Daniel. In chapter 8 of Daniel, Gabriel came and he gave Daniel the vision of the, um, the ram and the goat. And at the very end of chapter 8, after Gabriel had given this vision, Daniel's testimony is that I fainted and I was sick many days. Daniel came face to face with Gabriel and it took him days to get over that event. So this is no small thing that, that Gabriel, this is God's spokesman. Gabriel, literally the Hebrew word for Gabriel which is, is, is the L is God, the, the Gabe or the Gabri is, literally means mighty man or mighty of war. So this is God's representative who represents him in warfare. This is, this is comparable to David's mighty men. Only this guy stands next to God and when God says go, and he, you know, God could send the, small, the, the littlest angel in heaven he could wipe out any army on the face of the earth. You know, the, the middle, or um, um, during the Dark Ages, they loved to paint images of, of angels, and they were usually little bitty cherubs, little tiny things. And we'd laugh and say, that's, you know, God's, God's got mighty men. Sometimes we, we, we get so caught up in the fact that they depicted them as small little cherubs that we forget a little cherub could destroy entire armies. It's not their physical size, it's their spiritual authority. And Gabriel has all of the, the authority of God because he's on God's mission. 
And then the, the other time that he talked to Daniel was in, in Daniel chapter 9 where he gave him the vision of the 70 weeks, which all of end times teaching hangs on. So Daniel had two visits from Gabriel. One took days and days to get over. I mean, Gabe, David just fell out. Zacharias, at least, you know, to his own credit, he was troubled and afraid, but he didn't fall out and take days to get over it. Now, he did mess up, but he, he was pretty stout. Verse 13 says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. That's a very important little phrase there. Zacharias and probably uh, Elizabeth also have been praying for a child. In this society, if you are childless, you are considered cursed. God has cursed you. Otherwise, you would have children. Not only would you have kids, but you'd have a bunch of kids. That's, that's the proof that God's blessing you, that you have a quiver full of kids. And most families, you had five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids. The more kids you had, the more help you had on the farm, the more you prospered. And there weren't that many people in the earth, so you could have huge families back then. But we're going to see at some point, Zacharias' prayer had gone from, and I don't know, there's no testimony as to how he prayed, but I'm going to assume that Zacharias started out praying in faith. God, look, you, you, you took Abraham and Sarah, and he was old, she was old, they, she was barren, and you gave them a child. Why not me? I'm a priest. I'm serving you. And I'm, I, I, I know he, at the least, he was at least putting it before God and saying, why me? But at some point in there, circumstances got so hard. It had been so long that, that Zacharias' prayer, I, I, and this is my opinion, but I think the scriptures back it up, Zacharias' prayer became more formality. Lord, we want kids. It's been 30 years. We're both old. We want kids. But it's, he's praying it, but it's not a lot of faith, not a lot of oomph, because... A year went by, two years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, forty years. We're old. I don't know anybody, you know. Somebody joked one time they, 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 had, a, um, they had a real anointing to, to pray over women and have them get pregnant. And I said, don't even go close to my wife. Stay away. I'm an empty nester and I like it. Well, that wasn't, that wasn't Zacharias' prayer. He didn't want to be an empty nester. He wanted kids. But notice, drop down to verse 18. We're still in Luke 1. When the, when the, when the um, uh, angel said, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. From, from verse thir 14 through 17, he described the birth of John and who John was going to be and what John was going to do. Which you would think in Zacharias' mind, here's Gabriel. This is obviously an angel of God. And he said, not only are you going to have kids, but man, you are going to have a whopper of a kid. This is going to be one who, who, who brings in and makes the way of the Lord possible. In fact, he says in that passage, he said he's going to, he's going to bring reunite fathers and sons. 
hearkening back to the last verses of Malachi, where it says that, that it, at that last visitation, that God is going to bring the hearts of the fathers and sons back together. So he's telling Zacharias, we haven't heard anything from a prophet in over 400 years. Your son's going to be a new prophet. Prophecy's starting back up again, and it's going to be your kid. Now you'd think most people, hallelujah! Zacharias looks at him. Zacharias said to the angel, verse 18, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my, well, my wife is well advanced into, into, in years. And the angel answered and said to him, Now, when you read this, you've got you to gotta understand, I, I think Gabriel's countenance changed just a bit after Zacharias said this to him, because it's going to become a rebuke. If you jump down to verse 20, he says, Because you did not believe my words. Gabriel's a little ticked. I represent the God of the universe. And I just told you, God's heard your prayers, and He's not only going to give you a child, but He's going to give you a prophet. And you don't believe me? This is what He says, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. And behold, you will be mute, and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Not only did Gabriel rebuke him, he told him why he was rebuked, and he said, and this is your punishment. And it wasn't so much that it was a punishment, as much as it is, if I let you keep speaking, you're going to foul all this up. You're going to talk yourself into a hole. You're going to talk yourself out of God's will. And we need this prophet in the land. So that's it. Just sewed your mouth shut. You're not saying another word until you get in faith. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm kind of glad God doesn't do that a lot. Because there'd be times when, you know, we'd all be walking around with mummy mouth. You know, they sew the lips of mummies closed. I don't, I know there are times when I should have mommy mouth, but, you know, we still, we shouldn't do that. But let's contrast that with Mary, because this is Zacharias. Remember, only two times in history has Gabriel come to the earth and spoken to a man. And that's been 400 and some odd years ago when he came to Daniel. Now he's come to Zacharias. Now he's going to come to Mary. Same chapter, verse 26. This is six, seven months down the road because we don't know exactly how long it took. You know, how long did, did uh, Zacharias serve in the temple? And then he had to go home. He had relations with, with Elizabeth. And he couldn't go home and tell her what happened. You know, he can't talk. He just goes home and says, okay, if Gabriel's right, then there's only one way, to, you know, we're going to have kids. Well, it worked. Six months later, or in the sixth month, this is the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, it says, now in the six months, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. 
And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among woman, women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Now you have to understand, in, in, in Hebrew culture, Mary was a young teenager. She wasn't very old, 13, 14, 15 years old. You know, the, the, the husbands were normally in their 30s because they had to go through their apprenticeship and have a job and be able to support a wife. But a wife, as soon as you went through puberty, you're ready for marriage. So you've got a 30-year-old and a 15-year-old. We look on that from our modern culture and say, ew. I'll never forget the time I heard, you know, it was a teacher you learned to keep your ears tuned. And I heard a, a, these two girls talking, and this one girl was talking about this old man who was stalking her on Facebook. And I really became attentive then because if this is really going on, I, I need to alert somebody. And the more they talked, I kind of got intrigued. And finally, the one girl looked in and she said, well, how old is he? She said, well, he's 27. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my Lord, 27's become an old man? Now, to a 17-year-old, 27 was very old. But this was normal back then, okay? But Mary is a virgin. It says right there that she is a virgin, and Gabriel walks in and says, Rejoice! Look, put on your happy face. You are highly favored. God is with you, and you are blessed among women. And she's a little troubled, and she's thinking, What does this mean? Again, I'm, I look at the words, and I'm thinking, I'd be shouting. I'm favored by God. Lord's with me. And I'm going to be blessed among all the women in the earth? Wow, this is sounding pretty good. But Mary, part of it's the presence of Gabriel, but part of it is she considered what manner of greeting. She knew there was a shoe that had to drop. Verse 30 says, Then the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And verse 34, Mary answered the angel, because he explained to her what was going to happen. You're going to be found with child. And she says, how can this be? Since I don't know a man. In other words, I'm a virgin. I haven't had sex with anybody. How could I get pregnant? I mean, and she knew the facts of life. She knew the, birds and, knew the birds and bees. Then the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. Notice, he did not rebuke her for unbelief. But she did question him. But it wasn't questioning him in unbelief. It was questioning him more as far as methods. Look, I know how this works naturally, and I'm a virgin I don't know how I'm going to get pregnant. You're going to have to explain this to me because this does not make sense. Not rejecting what you're saying. But how's this going to work? And Gabriel, astutely, I mean, he's, he comes from the presence of God. He said, it's all going to be the power of the Holy Spirit, Mary. There's nothing natural here. We're not talking about natural things. We're talking about supernatural things. And your son is going to be the Son of God. And then he gives her some indication that he's already done some work. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, 
has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. He's saying, look, to you this looks impossible. To Elizabeth it looked impossible. I can't have any kids. It's been too many years, too many failures. But I came and spoke to him, and she's pregnant. I know you're a virgin, but you don't know the power of God in this thing. And the Holy Spirit's going to come on you, and you are going to get pregnant, and you are going to give birth, and your son's going to be the son of God. <clears throat> what was Mary's response? And, and he finished it up with, For with God nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Be it unto me as your words. She received what he said, where Zacharias rejected what he said. Now, God had his will either way. There are times, and you need to understand this, there are some things that work by God's sovereignty and some things that work by God's grace. If it's by God's grace, we're going to have to cooperate. We're going to have to receive it by faith and walk it out. But if it's a sovereign move of God, you don't want to get in the way of it. Zacharias got in the way. And while it wasn't a horrible punishment, it did have some consequences. But God needed John the Baptist in, and He needed it to be from Zacharias and Elizabeth because He needed John the Baptist to be related to Jesus, naturally speaking, so that they would have a relationship and know about each other because they were going to have a relationship later on. So He said, all right, John, or Zacharias, so when your mouth shut, you're not going to speak until he's born, you get up and give his name. But Mary reached out in faith. Now, here's the, the interesting part of this. And I, I really am not going to try to get too technical with you, but I am going to get technical. Because this is, I, maybe this doesn't fascinate you, but I'm one of those, because that's why I majored in science when I was in school. I, had no, I, I told God I wasn't going to be a pastor, wasn't going to be a preacher. But I still was so curious about everything. So I became a biologist so I could cut things open. I want to know how things worked. And everything I've done, I'm always curious. I want to get in. Well, this phrase here, when you look at it, if, if the, the term, the English term nothing or no thing, it's, it's the, the, the Greek term that is normally translated nothing or no thing is the Greek term odes. O-U and P-A-S, compound word. O meaning um, a negative, and it's an absolute negative. If you put that O-U in front, Omicron, Upsilon, in front of any other word and join it with it, it's, everything past there is negative. It cannot be positive after that. And then pos literally is an, it's a, uh, an absolute inclusion. And the thought, because I, I, I asked God, I said, well, how do, how do I illustrate an absolute inclusion? <laughs> and I thought of, well, it's like church membership. You know, if, if we're counting members, if you're being honest, and I'll just use Bill and Ruth, if Bill and Ruth are empty nesters. If we're counting church membership, Bill and Ruth are members, they're a family of two, because they're empty nesters. If we're using the, the, um, the Greek word pos, the all-inclusive, then they're a group of five because they've got those two, they've got a dog, a cat, and a parakeet, and we're including everything. And there are a lot of churches that that's how they count their members. 
You know, it's not just the people, it's the dogs, it's the cats, it's the pets, it's sometimes the varmints that are hanging around the house. If, if it moves, we're counting it because we want to get our numbers up because numbers are everything. That's this, this Greek word pos. So upos is, is, um, is the normal way. It's used 227 times in the New Testament to be, and it's translated nothing. But that's not the word here. The, the word he, that's used here is only used twice. It's used here, and it's also used in Matthew 17. And, and, and we're going to get over there to Matthew 17, but it's, it's, it, it's, it's just fascinating. In, in Matthew 17, it's talking about, it's the situation where the, um, the disciples, Jesus had been on the Mount of Transfiguration. When he comes down, he greets the disciples. And this guy had brought his son who was uh, demon-possessed. The Bible says he was moonstruck. He was an epileptic. And they couldn't cast the devil out. And it's used in that context there. But this word is triple compounded with udas and rhema. Rhema being the Greek word for word or for really a, for a revelation, for a revealed word. The, the, the best way I can describe it, there are two primary words that are translate Greek terms that are translated to word in the New Testament. One is lego and one is rhema. Lego is usually considered the written word. Rhema is a communicated word. It's something that, that not only have you, um, can you just read it and you understand it naturally, but you got a revelation of it. Suddenly, it just takes on new life. And I know you if you've been a, a, a Christian more than a few weeks, you've had that experience where you read a scripture, and you've read it and read it and read it and read it, and you read it today, and suddenly it just explodes. Lights go on. And, you know, it's like the little cartoon, the light bulb goes on over the head. And suddenly you see it differently. That's a rhema word. Log, a logos word or a lego word is good, you can't get to a rhema without the, leg, the logos. you got to start there. But eventually, we got to get to the rhema. Well, this says, when he says no thing is impossible, the impossible there means without power. So no thing is without power when it comes to God. But he's really not saying that. This is the Roberts translation, which you can take it or leave it, but it is there. I think it's fairly accurate. He's saying nothing that God reveals to you lacks the power to accomplish what He has revealed. Now that's a difference between nothing is impossible for God. Well, duh, He's God. If He wants to do it, He can do it. He is omnipotent. You know, he, he can do what he wants to do. And sometimes he will work sovereignly and we just, you know, your head wants to explode. You think, how did this happen? But if he wants to do it, he does. But for us, and that's the interest, that's the great part. In fact, this word rhema, it was interesting. Uh, if you look at, and you don't have to go there, but in, in Ephesians 6.17 where it's talking about the armor, it talks about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's the rhema of God. So if you're going to do warfare, you can't just take a scripture, and, and if you know me, you're going to pray, I'm going to give you scripture. You're on the prayer chain, when I give you, let's pray over this, this is what we're agreeing on. 
If you're not agreeing with Scripture, who knows what you're agreeing to? Those are, those are loosey-goosey prayers, and they're, not, they're usually not worth much. But if that, if that word that we're agreeing on is just a logos, it's just what you've read, but it's, yeah, that's good, you know. And we've all had this experience. Gina and I have had this many times, and it depends on which side you're on, how frustrated you get, where, you know, she comes running in, and it's like, you got to read this. And she'll hand it to me, and I'll read it, and it's like, yeah. No, read it. Don't you see it? And it's like, well, yeah. No, you don't. You don't see it. Can you not see this? And it's like, well, no, because you just got a revelation, and I'm reading the Logos. There's a difference. The sword of the Spirit is a rhema. If you're going to really go fight with the Word, you have got to get in it and get in it and stay with it and say, God, i got to understand this. i got to have a revelation of what this means. How does this work? And when you get that revelation, it's different. Don't misunderstand me. If you don't have a rhema, use the Logos. Use whatever tool you've got. You take the Word and you apply it. You beat the enemy's head. Because whether you have a revelation of it or not, the devil has a revelation of it because Jesus beat his brains in with it. And Jesus has a revelation. If you use it enough, the angels will say, hey, he's speaking God's word. He may not know everything he's doing, but I know what he's doing. You know, it's like the, 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 um, the missile system. We still have it, but it's not on near the alert it used to be back when I was a kid. When you had SAC and you had all the missiles, they were on alert 24 hours a day. And they had, the guys in the missiles, they had no idea what the president was doing. They had no idea what's going on. They're, they're isolated in there. But if they got the order, push the button, they pushed the button. They didn't have to understand the, the, the geopolitical ramifications. They just knew the proper order came down, push the button, pray to God this is not real, because if it is, you know, we're going to crawl out to a devastated country. We sometimes get the order. We can use the Logos until we get to Revelation, but when we get to Revelation, it's much more effective. I'm saying that to encourage you to get to Revelation. Now, the difference was Mary received the Revelation. Zacharias didn't. Mary, it was manifested instantly. The Logos became the sperma and joined with her egg and suddenly Jesus was there. Which ought to tell you, you know, when people want to argue, well, when does conception take place? Well, it, in, in the case of Gabriel and, and Mary, it happened when, when Mary received the Word. The Word became a sperma and the sperma fertilized the egg and Jesus was there. He wasn't casting out demons because he consisted of one cell. One cell. But he was fully Jesus. He was a human. That's all it took. And the second person of the Godhead invaded Mary. My proof of that is when Mary went to visit Elizabeth, what did John do? She's six months pregnant. John leaped within her because he's in the presence of the Messiah. 
She's barely pregnant. I don't know that at the time, had they had pregnancy tests, if she would have peed on the stick, would it have even come up positive? Because you've got to be pregnant for a few weeks before that thing shows. But John knew that Jesus was there. He leapt. He leapt so much that the Spirit came on Elizabeth and she prophesied. There's no record that Elizabeth ever prophesied, but she did that day. Why? Because she's in the presence of the Messiah and he's microscopic. It doesn't take much Jesus to get you over, folks. But let's go, you know, first of all, let's don't be too hard on Zacharias. And I want to go into this a little bit because we're going to see this in, in the situation with Matthew. And this is, I, I, I am, I'm, I'm going slow. You all are listening slow, can't be me. I'm going a little slower than I need to, but I, I want you to get this. Zacharias, and, and part of this is the difference between Zacharias and Mary. Now, Zacharias had had years to get used to being fatherless. He had had years of bombarding thoughts. You're never going to have kids. You're never going to have kids. You're never going to have kids. It's never going to work. Never going to work. You're cursed. You're cursed. You're cursed. When you get bombarded by that for years and you see the evidence of it for years, it becomes your identity. It becomes who you think, you, when you look at yourself in the mirror, you look at yourself and, and, and you see cursed. We saw it with Mephibosheth. He looked in the mirror, he didn't see Maribal anymore. He saw Mephibosheth, he saw a curse. He had the, that's part of the reason he had such a hard time accepting what Gabriel said. Now Mary, it, it wasn't any great, or it wasn't any easy leap to believe what Gabriel said. Because, you know, for a virgin teenager, and the angel says, you're going to get pregnant. It's like, whoa, how's this work? But at least she didn't, and, and this was the secret to Mary, she didn't try to overthink it. She just said, this, this creature right here comes from God's presence. She recognized that it was an angel. And he just told me that God's going to overshadow me and I'm going to get pregnant. Her brain didn't understand that even a little bit. But she said, I'll take your word for it. She was receptive. But she did have an advantage over Zacharias. She hadn't had years. She hadn't been growing up with, with somebody saying, Mary, you know, someday you're going to get old enough, but you'll never have kids. You can't have children. As far as Mary knew, I'm about to get married and I'm going to have a quiver full. Well, she did. But, but the difference was Mary said, yes, I'll, I'll move it your word. The evidence, she didn't have nearly the contrary evidence that Zacharias had. And that's important, the contrary evidence. Let's go to um, the other place where this phrase, upas rama, or rama, is used. It's Matthew 17, verse 20. And this is Jesus speaking here. And he says, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, if you've ever seen a mustard seed, they're tiny. And I've preached sermons on, you know, yeah, mustard seeds are tiny, but when you plant them, they grow, and they grow into a big bush. Well, they do. 
But the point here isn't that it's going to grow into a big bush. The point is, it's not a lot. If you even have the tiniest amount of faith, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Exact same phraseology that we saw over in Luke. Upas rhema. No thing that God reveals to you will lack the power to accomplish what, what God's told you He will do. The point being the revelation. If you have the revelation, the power is there to move the mountain. And the, right here in that verse, the evidence that, the, that, the, that, that it is a revelation, they're willing to say, Mountain, get up and get over here. Now, in this, this, this picture of this, I, I, in my understanding, Jesus is on the Mount of, of, I think, the Mount of Olives, where He is going to come back when He returns. And when He hits that mountain, that mountain is going to split. And it's going to create a rift from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Dead Sea. There, and in, in modern times, they have gone, because occasionally Israel will have minor earthquakes, and they went and found there is a fault that runs right under the Mount of Olives. And it's going to split, and the Dead Sea will become the Living Sea, because the Mediterranean will run into the Dead Sea, and it will be filled with life. God can resurrect anything. So when Jesus says you'll, you'll tell the mountain, say to this mountain, move from here to there, he's, talk, he's prophesying there. You guys can do this because, buddy, I'm coming back someday and I'm going to speak to this mountain. It's literally going to move. But when you get a revelation of what I want for you, you can say to your mountain, get up and get out of here. And it's going to get up and it's going to get out. It cannot fail to... Because the power is available with the revelation. Amen? It's there. Now, if you look at the context, because remember, context is king. But the, the greatest thing is, I look at Luke, it says, With God nothing is impossible, but here in Matthew, with me, nothing is impossible. God has elevated me to His status. When He gives me the revelation, I can do the things that He does. Now, this is not something that you walk around and, you know, it's some flipping thing. Hey, look at me. <clears throat> Ain't I something? I can do what God does. No, it's a humbling thing. And it's part of the reason, I'll be honest with you, a lot of us are like Zacharias. God would love to give us the power that everything we say comes to, to, to pass. But most of us, if Gabriel appeared before you and said, I'm going to grant you the power that every word you say is going to come to pass instantly, and our first reaction is going to be, wow, that thrills me to death. You're gone. <laughs> he can't trust us with the weapon. If he can't trust us with the weapon, he's not going to give us the powder. It's like I've said before. Physically, you can load a 14-inch gun on a frigate. It'll fit. But you turn that gun sideways and shoot it, and it's going to flip that boat right over. 
because that ship doesn't have enough mass to, to overcome the power of that, that weapon. You only put big guns on big ships because you need that. Well, the ship is your character. And until your character, and specifically your tongue, gets under control, and James tells us, nobody's going to control their tongue. Well, if I can't control my tongue, how's he ever going to give me power? You're going to have to allow God to control your tongue. It's the only way it ever works. And if you, if you really get a revelation of how much power you have in your words, the first reaction is you, just, you get to the point where you just don't say much of anything. Because you realize, I don't, want to, I don't want to foul this thing up. It's too important. So you just get kind of quiet and people, you know, but that's not a bad thing because, you know, in most conversations, if you stay real quiet, people look at you and they think you're really wise. They really just don't know that you're just lost. I know. Anyway, in Matthew, the context here, the first 13 verses of, of Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. So this is coming right up before he was, was crucified. But starting in, in verse 14, they have this encounter with this man whose son was epileptic. And he came to, remember, Peter, James, and John are with Jesus. So the other disciples are off here. And this man brings his, his um, um, son to them. And they try to cast the devil out, and they can't. They just cannot get it done. They try. The, you know, if it, if it was trying, worked, they would have succeeded. But they couldn't get it done. And then Jesus comes, and the man approaches Jesus and says, Look, your, your disciples have tried to do this, but they have been totally unsuccessful. And Jesus looks at them, and he makes, he makes this statement. Let me find it here. I didn't put it in my notes. Verse 16. This is the Father. So I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered the man and said, O faithless and perverse generation. His first response to the Father is to speak to the disciples indirectly, but he's still speaking to them. He's saying, you are faithless and you're perverse. Now, we hear faithless. This is the, the Greek word opisto, or pistis, depending on whether it's an adjective or a noun form. But again, it's that, that first letter of the Greek alphabet, alpha, which gives it a negative. That's where we get, it's, a lot of times this is, is translated unbelief, or sometimes faithless. The less or the un is the alpha. The pistis or the pistio, depending on what form it is, is faith. It's the word that, that Paul uses for faith all the time. But he's, what he's saying is, is you have, you got plenty of faith, you just got faith in the wrong thing. You've got negative faith. And in this situation, if you think about it, imagine what happened. Matthew doesn't record it, but I think it's in Mark's account of this. It says that, that the father brings the boy to Jesus, and Jesus casts the devil out. And it says, and the boy falls. And, or no, excuse me, Jesus asks the father about the boy, and the boy falls and starts having a seizure. And Jesus ignores him. Now, if it's us, we're all going to rush over there and we're going to start casting the devil out. Jesus starts talking to the Father. He said, how long has this been going on? 
very nonchalant. If I'm the father, I'm thinking, why aren't you doing something? Because Jesus doesn't care about that manifestation. That manifestation's nothing. It doesn't move him. He's not moved by tears. He's not moved by anything except what he believes and what the Father tells him. And so he's talking to the Father, and then when a crowd starts gathering, Jesus decides, I've got to deal with this now because there's going to be a lot of unbelief out here. And so he looks at the boy and he said, come out of him. And it says the boy was cured from that hour. But it says before he was cured, the, boy, the, the demon tore him. But even when the demon's tearing him on his way out, Jesus doesn't pay attention to the manifestation. Why? That's not where his faith is. Imagine what happened when the disciples were dealing with this. They'd already gone out. Jesus had told them, we're in Matthew 17 and Matthew 10, Jesus had told the disciples, I give you power over all the power of the enemy. You go out and you cast out demons, you heal the sick. You preach the good news. And I can envision it, and this is my vision, but, but I think it's accurate looking at Mark's account. I think the disciples came up to this boy, and one of them grabbed him and commanded that devil to come out, and the boy fell down, and he started having a seizure. And the disciples looked at each other and said, wonder why it's not working this time. I cast him out, but he's not gone. He's hurting this kid. And they talked themselves into unbelief. They, they looked at what happened in their circumstances, and they, that became more real to them than what Jesus had told them, that you have power over this demon. They had, they had faith, but now their faith is placed in what they're seeing, rather than what Jesus said. Now that'll... That'll, not only will that preach, that affects every one of our lives. You read Psalm 103, first five verses. He not only forgives my sins, but He heals me of all my sicknesses. Well, I don't feel very healed. I prayed, I prayed. I prayed over so-and-so. I prayed over my kids. I prayed over my wife. I prayed over my husband. I prayed over this person. And they got worse. Who are you going to believe? Those lying symptoms? Or the God of the universe. If you get over and start watching the manifestation, watch the results that you're seeing physically, you're, you're, you've, you're exercising your faith. Because let's face it, we are faith creatures. We cannot do anything that's not in faith. It's just what is our faith in? Is it in what we see or is it in, is it in what God says? If it's in what we see, and what we see doesn't line up with what God says, we're exercising negative faith. But it has just as much result as... as in fact, we're, we're well-trained in that kind of faith. I mean, how many times have you heard, well, it's flu season, you better get your flu shot. And I'm not preaching against flu shots. I have no problem going to the doctor and getting a flu shot. Immunize me for anything and everything. I'll take all the weapons I can get. I go to battle, hand me an M4, hand me an M16, but I, saw, I would also like a rocket launcher and an M1 Abrams behind me and maybe a couple of other tanks and you know, a couple of uh, whatever, some F-18s overhead. I want everything. I want every weapon available to me. Load me down to where I can't walk. The great thing about God's weapons, 
The only one you really need is the sword of the Spirit. Once you get a revelation, then there's power available. Amen? And it's not that heavy. But these guys, they, they should have been able to cast it out. But what did Jesus say? He said, you're faithless and perverse. Now, oh, I'm running out of time. The perverse, when we think of perverse, we think of sexual sin. We think of someone that's out doing all kinds of foul, nasty stuff. It's not what that verse or what that word means. That word simply means to turn away. And the picture I get is Psalm 23. He prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. But when the enemies are screaming and shouting and threatening you, you turn your back on his table and you face your enemies. And all you can see is the enemy. All you can see is the problem. All you can see is the, is the, the symptoms. Now believe me, when you've got pain in your body, it's hard to ignore the symptoms. That's part of the reason that God has called us to pray one for another. Gina and I have, have joked for years, you know, it's going to be a terrible day if we both ever get down at the same time. Because when she gets down, it's my job to pull her up. When I get down, it's her job to pull me up. We both get down, who in God's name is going to pull us up? Well, I'm going to look to one of you. That's why we're a body, to pull each other up. In fact, when I see somebody sinking, I ought to say, hey, look, you know, you're over in the quicksand. Come, come here. Reach down. Don't wait till they're neck deep. When you see them just starting to sink a little bit, say, hey, I'm not quite sure that that ground you're on is very good. Why don't you come over here with me? I'm on pretty firm ground. Now, if you're, if you're neck deep in the, in the quicksand, it's going to be hard for you to pull anybody out. That's why holiness is required. Get over on the rock. Get off the sand. Quit preaching and went to meddling, didn't I? But th this, when, when Jesus rebukes them, He says, you are a faithless and a perverse generation. He's talking to His disciples. Keep in mind, though, Peter told us, 1 Peter 2, 9, you're a chosen generation. If you're, if you're going to walk over here in unbelief, you're going to act like a perverse generation, but you're not. God says you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a king and a priest. The problem is, James said it. He said, you know, spring shouldn't be spewing forth salt water and then, then sweet water. Pick one. Salty or sweet? You know, uh, uh, in Revelation it says, you know, either be hot or be cold. But if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Now, I've heard that preached a lot of times that you need to run for Jesus, but if you can't run for Jesus, at least run for the devil. Gives God something to work on you with. No, that's not what that means. It means if I go get a cup of coffee, I want it hot. I don't lukewarm coffee. The best coffee in the world when it's lukewarm is like, where is a microwave? I've got to heat this up. It's not good lukewarm. And God forbid you put ice in it. I'm not sure who perverted that practice, but oh my goodness, no. And then iced tea, though, you got to have ice in it. It's got to be cold. 
I want it to hurt if you drink it too fast. I want it that cold. I want it ready to just start freezing. And I'm not sure who started that perverse thing of making it hot, because that's just nasty. I know. All you tea drinkers are thinking, yeah. But in my mind, tea's cold, coffee's hot. Neither one of them are great when they're lukewarm. If I got nothing else and I'm really thirsty, I'll do anything lukewarm. Growing up, my father was convinced if you were working outside and it was hot, you'd never drink cold water because that'll make your, your gut freeze up. So we only got to take tap water out and we'd set it out in the sun so it was a little, kind of a little warm after, you know, around noon. There's nothing worse than being hot and you pick up a jug of water and it's just got a little bit of warmth to it. It's like, this does not refresh me. That's what Jesus is saying. Whatever the, the, the situation calls for, if it calls for hot, be hot. If it calls for cold, be cold. Gina's been dealing with this thing on her back. You know what, what really sounds good to her? Put the heating pad on that thing. Man, some heat would really help. And the doctor says, don't ever do that. Put ice packs. Now, if you knew my wife, it could be 110 degrees outside. She's cold. Putting ice on your body, that's not something that you ever do. You know, that's just, that's a ticket to go, you know, end up in the hospital. But she has discovered with this, this thing that's going on in her back right now that ice actually makes it feel better. Why? Because cold is called for. Heat is not. That's what Jesus is telling us. Get where the situation is called for. Now, what's the, the bottom line here? Well, I'll have to finish it next week. The, the bottom line, and let me, let me give you, let me close with this scripture, but we're, I've got a lot more that I want to get into. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. If you read it, I'm only interested in the last part of verse 8 and the first part of verse 9. The, the whole verse says, Whom having not seen you love, speaking of Jesus, though now you do not see Him, but this is the point, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible, King, I love the King James, joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith. Believing, having faith, has uh, uh, signs. It's recognizable. If you're walking in faith, you're going to have joy that's inexpressible. And you're, it's going to be full of glory, and you're going to receive the end of your faith. Hebrews 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I don't have to see it, but I believe it because I have God's Word on it. God told the, Jesus told the disciples, you have power over all the power of the enemy. When you cast that demon out, he's coming out. When Jesus cast him out, he didn't come right out. You would think this is the second person of the Godhead. That devil should have gone screaming instantly, but he didn't. He ripped him on the way out, and it took a little while. Bible says he was healed that self-same hour. Hour. That means there's a time period there. And Jesus paid no attention to him. He didn't go back up a second time. He said, I told you to get out. 
No, he hadn't given the command. The thing had to go. He ignored it after that because he knew it was going to happen. He didn't get caught up in the circumstances. When we get a revelation that God's given us a promise and we put our faith on it, we suddenly get filled with joy because that faith and that joy is full of glory and we've received the end of our faith. I have it even though I can't see it. In fact, my circumstances may go the wrong way. Who cares? God said it's mine. And I have claimed it and I'm going to stand on it. Now the hard part is, when everything screams, it's not working, it's not working, it's not working. And everybody you surround yourself says, you're a fool, it's not working. Sometimes your eyes start to get off of what God said, and they start to get on the circumstances, and you start looking around thinking, I wonder why this is not working. And Jesus is grabbing his head saying, oh, what a faithless and perverse generation I've got to deal with. That's not how he sees us, but that's somehow, sometimes how we behave. What he wants us to do is says, I'm sticking with this. I don't care. I may go to the grave with this sickness. But my last, the last words out of my mouth are going to be, bless God, I am healed. I'll give you one example and I'll finish with this one because I've gone long. Um, Dodie Osteen. She was diagnosed, and this has been years ago, diagnosed with liver cancer. They prayed. She was believing. She was believing. She got worse. She got worse. She got worse. She's in the hospital. They called the family in. They said, your mom's got maybe an hour to live. This is it. She's full of jaundice. Her liver is zero functioning. She's full of cancer. And she's laying on that bed saying, no, I am healed. I am healed. I am healed. She got within minutes of dying. The doctors have given up. We can just give her stuff to keep her comfortable. And she said, I don't care. I'm healed. That's been 15 years, 20 years ago? Longer? She's alive today. No cancer. It left instantly, completely at death's door. I'll give you a better one. We sang uh, today, Psalm 73, 26. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know why I, can, I know that, the, the, the verse and the address for that one? I was, was in the midst of a heart attack. Not a little heart attack. The clot I had was just below the, the widow maker. And I'm out at, at, at my church. I'm 45 miles from the hospital. I'm 20 miles from the nearest gas station. And I'm standing behind my car looking at a tree. I'd come out, had a chainsaw in the trunk. I'm going to go cut this tree up because we were having a fellowship on Sunday. This is like Thursday. And I'm going to cut this limb up. And I'm standing there and I know at this point I'm in the midst of a heart attack. Symptoms are pretty clear by this point. <clears throat> and I'm by myself. And the thought came into my head. I can go down there and cut that tree up. God will heal me. I'm going to put feet to my faith. And then right behind that thought came another thought. You know, you can exercise your faith cutting up that tree... Or you, ex you can exercise your faith in the back of an ambulance going to the hospital. 
If your faith fails, which one's going to be the best place to be? Even a lightning fast mind like mine. Ambulance is a better place to be if I don't get an answer to my faith immediately. And so I got in my car, first house I came to, I saw the garage door open. I stopped, walked in the garage, sat down on their stoop and pounded on the back door. Strangely, nobody came to the door. Some strange guy sitting in our garage pounding on the door. Probably some lady in there getting ready to call the police thinking, what in the world's going on? I got back in my car and thought, I can stop at a dozen houses and do the same thing. This, I can't do this. So I just put the pedal to the metal and I took off and I said, Lord, you're going to have to give me something. He gave me Psalm 73, 26. John, I am the strength of your heart and I will keep your heart beating till you can get somewhere. And I'm driving down the road in the midst of a heart attack. I mean, sweat's pouring out of me like crazy. I pulled into this gas station 25 miles down the road, laid on my horn, some poor old guy, he's eating, he's sitting there, he's gone to this little restaurant, got a sandwich, he's sitting there drinking his Yoo-Hoo, eating a bologna sandwich, and I'm honking at him, waving him over. He comes over in my car, and I know I was as white as that jacket that, and, and I said, please go call me an ambulance, and I went out, I laid, and I know he thought, oh God, this guy just died on me. <clears throat> Show you how God works it out? Just so happened that the ambulance from the hospital, which is another 15 miles away, got a false alarm. And they're just coming back from their false alarm. And they're 30 seconds from where I am. When they called the ambulance within 30 seconds, they're at my, at my door. And they, they think I'm probably dead. And... They pick me up, they carry me in, and, and you know, the EMT's standing there back, sitting back there with me, and he's talking to the driver, and he's saying, you better hurry up, you better hurry up. And I'm sitting there, please don't say that again. <laughs> You're not filling me with a lot of confidence here. <laughs> but I, in the midst of that, I'm saying to myself, Lord, you are the strength of my heart. You are the strength of my heart. And I've told the story. I sat down with our, my cardiologist afterwards, not even out of the hospital, and he said, you're done. No more work, no more mowing your grass, maybe 10 years, you, you, you've just wiped out the entire front wall of your heart. It's gone. There's nothing left alive. And he said, I just don't have a very good picture for you. And I smiled and Gina laughed. And he looked at her and thought, what in the world are you all laughing about? And she said, you just threw raw meat in front of a dog. He's going to devour that. I, I literally, I sat down in my hospital room and I got out a legal pad and I wrote out a contract with God. That verse was what the heart of that contract. You said, you will be the strength of my heart. I don't care how bad that heart, heart muscle is damaged. For a while, I used to confess, I'm going to go in and have a perfect EKG reading. And then I got to realizing, what do I care what my EKG says? I don't care what it says. God's the strength of my heart. The EKG may say, hey, it's not working very well. Who cares? The God of the universe is in there squeezing on it. It works fine. That's 20 years last month. And he told me I wouldn't live 10. When they called me two years ago, a little over two years ago, I'm laying at home getting ready to take a nap. The phone rings. I am not a happy camper. You woke me up from my nap. And I got on the phone. John, you need to get down here. Gina's in the bathroom, she's collapsed, she's had a heart attack, it doesn't look good, she's probably not going to live. 
You have never seen me put their clothes on faster than I did that day. Jumped in my little car. God, please keep the police away from me because I'm going to drive safe, but I'm driving fast. And I don't care if the red's light or the, the, the light is red. If there's no traffic, I'm going through. I'll find a way. And I got from, from our house to, I forget the restaurant now, uh, BJ's. They remember her. Anyway, I got there in record time. But on the way, I'm saying, God, you got to give me something. you got to give me something to hang on to. What did he do? He gave me Psalm 118, verse 17. You shall not die, but you shall declare the works of the Lord. And I walked into BJ's, and I walked back to the, in the, to the bathroom. The first thing I see is a little group of women all in a circle holding hands, praying. Well, that's encouraging. Because only one of them was from our church. The other were just dining at BJ's. And they knew somebody was having problems, but they were Christians. And they jumped in. And they said, there's a need. I'm going to pray. I don't care if I came out for lunch. I need to put my lunch aside and I need to pray. And they were unashamed. And they, I opened that door and went into that bathroom. You do not want to walk in a public bathroom. There's like 10 people in there. Firemen, EMTs, your wife's laid out stark naked. Wires all over her. And big burly guy grabs you to hold you from coming in. Because they didn't want me interfering. To me, I whispered it. Kathy said I screamed it. <laughs> but I said, Gina, you will not die today. God said that you are going to live and not die. This is not your day to go. You know what? There was a revelation with the Word. And because of the revelation, there was power available. And the power, and believe me, it did not look good. They got her to the hospital. They stopped, you know, on the way to the cath lab. And they stopped her and they said, you can be with her for a few minutes. I just reached down and I whispered her in the ear. I said, today's not your day to die. And I stood back up and I said, you can take her. The lady looked at me, kind of puzzled. She says, you can take a few minutes. I said, I don't need a few minutes. I've said everything I need to say. She needs a doctor now, not more than me. she needs me. And I know that lady had to think, wow, that's one hard-hearted dude. No, I had spoken what I knew because of what God told me. And I knew the power of God was available. Now the doctor, to this day, he, the last time we went to see him, or the first time she went to see him, she said, do you remember me? He says, oh, honey, <laughs> normally all I see is, is the, the groin where I'm putting the little tube in and I look at the scope. He said, that's all I see. He said, but your face is burned into my heart forever. He said, you that day, he said, it was like jumping out of a plane at 30,000 feet and, you've got, and you realize going out of the plane, I haven't put my parachute on. And you got about 30 seconds to get that parachute on or you're going to splat on the ground. He said, I will never forget you. And he said, you're a miracle. Before she got out of the hospital, and believe me, we've dealt with some things in the last two years. But before she got out of the hospital, we had, we had um, uh, people, attendants coming by just poking their head in the room. And we'd stop and say, can we help you? No, I just wanted to come see the miracle. I'm not talking once. I'm talking several times. These are medical people. They're not used to seeing miracles. But they'd poke their head in because all of them are saying, and God help me, God is my witness. Chuck was there. 
the chaplain came in and did everything in her power to talk me out of my faith. She said, well, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. God's at work in her body. And she's laying there. They've got her cooled down to 89 degrees. She's out of it. She's got, I mean, she's got like six IVs running into her everywhere. By appearances, she's on death's door. In fact, there's the first two days, there were a lot of times the nurses came running in. Alarms went off. When alarms go off and nurses come running, and there's more than one of them, and they're on the phone, this is not looking good. But through all of that, I kept going back to what God told me. She will not die, but she will declare the works of the Lord. And I'd say, no, you can't die. That heart's going to have to get back in rhythm. Now. I need to get back in rhythm. Now, we have to fight the fight, and we're still fighting the fight. But the revelation has the power to get what God says we're going to do. But for God's sakes, don't be like the chaplain who said, well, now, you know, you never know. Sometimes these things just go the wrong way. It got to, I was polite, but man, you don't know how much, how much effort it took for me not to just grab her by the scruff of her neck and escort her out of the room and say, don't come back. And I think it was pretty clear to her that we did not want her to come back because she never came back and visited again. But I just told her, no, I don't accept that. She's going to live. Didn't make any bit of sense to her, but it made plenty of sense to me because God gave me the revelation. He'll do that for you. I'm nothing special. Believe me, if you knew, if you knew everything that goes through my stupid brain, every thought I have, every action I do, you would think, good God, how does God ever use him? Because I have that thought about every five minutes. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's about Him and His grace. And He's just sitting there saying, let me give you a revelation of this. You got a need. I got a revelation for you. And with the revelation comes the power. But you're going to have to get your eyes off that circumstance. Because if you keep your eyes on the circumstance and the, the, the symptoms, you're going to get over into unbelief. You're going to be faithless. You're going to be perverse. You're going to turn away from his table and face the enemy. And that ain't going to get you nothing but what you got. Amen? I got more, and I really, that was not a quick closing. But I really believe God wants to, to, he wants to get it across to us. He's for us. He's for us so much more than we are for us. If, if, if I was God, I would have quit on me years ago. If I was God, I probably would have quit on most of you years ago. Thank God I'm not God. But neither are you. And, and, and let me give you a preview. Where I'm going with this is, for most of you, what is your number one prayer need? And I can tell you what, for most of you, family. Kids, parents, cousins, somebody in your family screwed up, messed up, out in the world, doing stuff, and you want to see them come into the knowledge of God. This is the secret. Believing with joy, unspeakable, full of glory, receiving the end of your faith. 
Quit talking about what they're doing. Start talking about what God's doing in their life. When you get in, in their presence and they start spouting off and cussing and they got alcohol in their breath and they're just acting like a total fool, just look at them and say, wow, God has blessed you so much. You have no idea what God's got in store for you. It'll blow their brains out. They'll look at you like, are you crazy? I hate God. And you'll say, no, you only think you do. God's on your tail, buddy. And I'm believing that he's, he, that he's already ahead of you. And I'm believing He's going to get your attention. When He does, the light's going to go off in your head. And it'll take, more, it'll take more than just your faith, but it starts with your faith. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.